Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, first of all, I want to thank the elders who have given me this opportunity. Um, and second, this is the first time I've ever used a PowerPoint in a church setting. Now, I've used the PowerPoint in a lot of lectures that I did because I also taught and lectured low-income housing, civil rights, and um, I did that in several states. So I'm familiar with the PowerPoint. I, this is my first, though, in, in, the, in the church setting. We come this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes. And let me start out by saying that this is probably the most controversial book in the entire scripture. In the last 150 years, there's been 2,000 books written on it, uh, books or articles. And it seems like nobody has the same view. And there's some pretty radical views that we'll look at. So let's go ahead and get started. That. Is there any way to make this screen full size? Never mind, I'll put my glasses on. Okay, I, I'm going to start by giving you a quote from Ardell Kennedy. I went to school with him, and he went on and got his PhD and then taught in Minnesota and was the head of the New Testament department. Um, and I forget the school's name. But we've stayed in touch over the years. And this was probably the first real study that I did on Ecclesiastes, which I preached about 30 years ago. It's amazing how many books and articles have been written since then. And so my notes from 30 years ago didn't really help me at all. Um, the book, The Enigmatic or Mysterious or Difficult to Understand, The Enigmatic Character and Polarized Structure of the Book of Coleth, and I'll talk to you about who that is, is not a defective quality, but rather a deliberate literary device of Hebrew thought patterns designed to reflect the paradoxical and anomalous nature of the present world. And when we talk about the present world, we're talking about the world that has been turned upside down due to sin. And that's something we have to remember as we look at this book. You know, what should be, what was intended to be, is not what is. I mean, we, we saw, or we see that, you know, Adam was created upright. Solomon tells us about that. Adam was created upright, but he fell. And the fall not only affected man, but it affected the entire universe. One of the key verses that I gave for memory, you might say, why are you doing Romans chapter 8? You know, that's a long way from Solomon. But Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul talks about that due to the, due to the fall, creation has been subject, subjected to vanity or frustration in the hope that one day it will be delivered. And that, that is a broad, overarching view of the book of Solomon. Ecclesiastes, we see, uh, let me talk about this quote, is how the book should be understood. Solomon is writing about the world that has been subjected to frustration due to the fall of man. And here's that verse. For creation was subjected to futility. And that's the same word that Solomon uses, vanity or frustration. The earth was subject, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And here's where, you know, verse divisions don't always work. Um, because verse 20 ends, 
subtracted it in hope. Okay, in hope of what? Well, in verse 21, it says that creation itself also would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And that's an overarching theme that we must remember throughout the book. As we will see, there are many views of diverse nature. Ecclesiastes, like I said, is one of the most controversial books. And one of the confusing factors is that wisdom books are part of ancient Near Eastern literature. And we come, we read it from a Western mindset. And sometimes those two things conflict or make it more difficult. So we gotta take the author in the context that he wrote. Now, what I'm gonna do is go through the title, author, date, targeted audience, structure, interpretation, and epilogue. On your handout, I gave you two sample outlines, which I, I'm not gonna go over in the presentation. The title. From the first verse in the book of Ecclesiastes, the words of the preacher, or Colette, the words of the preacher, the Hebrew term kahal is the, means, is the word that means assemble or gather together or convene. And that's really what koalette means. Some have suggested that it shouldn't be koalette or preacher, but rather it should be the convener. The NASB, the preacher, is an accurate translation of the Hebrew word. He is the one who gathers people together to speak to them. The Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, used the term Ecclesiastes. And that's where we get the name Ecclesiastes. The author, and this is where we get into controversy. First of all, arguments in favor of the author. Now, when you look at trying to determine, um, you know, the reliability of the book and things like that, um, you know, we've, we've got to understand some things and we'll look at that. In Ecclesiastes 1.1, we read the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Now, my question is, who else could that be? As far as I know, David only had one son who was king, and that was Solomon. Then you see God's response to Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 3, where Solomon's prayer, I think, touched the heart of God. And God told him this, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has not been no one like you before you, nor shall one, uh, and there's a spelling error, one like you arise after you. And there's further verses in the book of the first Kings, which we'll look at, uh, which we won't look at. Um, so we got the internal evidence, and then we go to the external evidence. And that means what did the church say about this book throughout history? The first 1600 years of church history affirmed that Solomon was the author. There's only two, uh, things that I found that would dispute that, and those were two Jewish scholars in the 12th century, um, uh, 1200s, who wrote that Isaiah was the author. But I just threw that one out. The first person to deny the Solomonic authorship is a theologian, politician, philosopher by the name of Hugo Gratius, who died in 1645. Since Gratius, there has been many to deny or question the authorship. Deny that Solomon is the author or question Solomon is the author. So the question is what changed? It's important for us to understand what happened since the end of the Reformation. After the Reformation, we move into what is called the age of science or the age of reason, which led to the enlightenment. Several key figures, Isaac Newton, John Locke, David Hume, and Immanuel Kant really laid the stage for what we're about to see. One of the most important things to realize 
about how knowledge is attained through the scientific method. Science deals with theories, hypothesis, testing, and they come up with a degree of probability. They never come to 100% truth. In fact, the age of reason uh, or science said that prior to this, people were not led by reason, but led by faith. And so we need to change that. The line of reasoning led to the development of what is called the higher critical method, interpretation of the Bible in the 1800s. This has had a great impact on both liberal and conservative theologians up to the present time. The basic presupposition in this view is that there is no such thing as the supernatural. And so you see what that does to the entire scripture. You rule out the supernatural, you basically rule out the scriptures. You come to what, like Rudolf Bullmann did, we have to separate the kernel from the shaft. We have to demythologize. Two main figures during this time were F.C. Bauer and Julius Wellhausen. Bauer actually founded the Tübingen School of Theology in the mid-1800s. Wellhausen, who lived from 1844 to 1918, is best known for his analysis of the structure and dating of the Pentateuch. He didn't believe that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. He said, you can look at this book and there's various authors that you can clearly define. And one thing we see is they start pushing the dates uh, forward. And then during this same period of time, we must not forget our dearly beloved Charles Darwin. Darwin had a great impact with his work, and it has impacted the church and theology up to this present day. It's interesting to see at the turn of the 20th century how many orthodox theologians tried to fit Darwin's theory into theology. Now let's look at the date. If one accepts the Solomonic authorship, which I do, the dating of the book is during his reign as king from approximately 970 to 931 BC. Many believe that Solomon wrote the Song of Songs early in his reign, Proverbs during the middle of his reign, and then Ecclesiastes shortly before his death. And then other views, you know, they take it from Isaiah all the way to 200 BC. And, and the goal of this, the dating of this, comes about with the presupposition there's no such thing as the supernatural. If there's no such thing as the supernatural, then Isaiah could not have written about Cyrus. And therefore, there has to be another author that wrote after Cyrus reigned. And thus, it's historical, not prophetic. We find that the Jewish nation, you know, uh, had the covenant name for God, Yahweh. It's not used in the book of Solomon or Ecclesiastes. You don't find the term Yahweh or Jehovah. Rather, it is the term Elohim, which is a general description of God. We find that the word used to designate man, or Adam, is, it, this intends, that is to say Adam, to refer to generically uh, to any one of the human beings, Jew or Gentile, male or female, that has ever lived. And so in other words, what we're going to see is that Solomon is not writing to the Jewish people. Solomon is writing to mankind in general. We find another thing, that there is an extensive use of Genesis 1 through 11 throughout the book. Basically, Solomon's theology 
was developed by his understanding of Genesis 1 through 11. We find that there's references of the creation ordinance, marriage, labor, and it plays a vital role in the infrastructure of Ecclesiastes. Let me read a quote from O. Palmer Robinson in his book, The Christ of Wisdom. The original ordinance established at creation continues to have direct application to the whole of humanity and quite, uh, quite clearly have a major role to play in the thought world of Colet. God sanctified to himself one day in seven. Colet expected his recipients to come to worship in the house of God. The creator commanded original man and woman to multiply and replenish the earth. Colet encouraged the man to enjoy life with his wife, whom he loves. At creation, Colet underscored the centrality of mankind's enjoyment of food. God directed Adam to subdue the earth, and Colet then reasons that there's a responsibility and he has an emphasis of labor in human life. And so we see all of this flowing out of the book of Genesis. Now, instead of giving you an outline, let me give you a basic structure. The book of Solomon, or book of Ecclesiastes, basically breaks down into three sections. There is a prologue, which runs from 1-1 to 11. There is the body of literature that runs from 112 through 127, and then there is the conclusion. Three phases, or three phrases are found in the prologue that recur repeatedly throughout the book. First, he summarizes the theme of his discourse with the phrase, and, and most versions have vanity, vanity, all is vanity. I think it's probably better translated, frustration of frustrations, all frustration. Second, he asks penetrating questions regarding the meaningfulness of human life. When he asks in verse number 3a, what's the profit? Now, I'm, I'm actually using another word that's found there, uh, but I think it would be probably better translated, what's the profit? Third, he refers to a cycle of human life on this earth, under the sun. Robertson states, the author points to cosmic cycles that demonstrate the inevitability, um, the inevitability uh, that creation was subjected to futility or frustration, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And again, we see the Apostle Paul, let me just add this as a side note, I think the Apostle Paul used the book of Ecclesiastes or was familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes because we find several things in Paul's writings. And I think this is probably the Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21 is the most powerful impact where he says that creation is subjected to frustration. Now let me give you a liberal interpretation. William Brown states, and this is a modern theologian pastor in the United Presbyterian Church. He states about Ecclesiastes, this is a cosmos devoid of telos and full of toil, a world without direction and seemingly deprived of its own genesis. Creation elsewhere in the Bible consistently wedged genesis and purpose, ontology and teleology, as determined by the divine will. But there is nothing, properly speaking, creative about coalless cosmos. Indeed, God does not even appear to be involved. Well, we've already seen that God is involved. And one of the very interesting things, you know, you look at and you, probably everybody thinks of uh, Solomon or Ecclesiastes and says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That word is used 37 times in the the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. But the term Elohim is used 40 times throughout the book. R. Scott has the following to say he, in the Anchor Bible, which I really don't recommend. It denies some of the things on which the other writers lay the greatest stress, notably that God has 
revealed himself and his will to man. In place of a religion of faith, hope, and obedience, this writer expresses a mood of disillusionment and proffers a philosophy of resignation. His ethic has no relationship to divine commandments, for there are none. Finally, he says that Solomon was a rationalist, an agnostic, a skeptic, a pessimist, and a fatalist. He wasn't too kind to, to, to Solomon. But he draws this from the fact that he is discounting that there are any scripture references, any interpretation throughout the body of the book where Solomon brings in theology. And we see it throughout the book. Odell Kennedy states concerning the liberal interpretations of critics with unified voice to cry Cola's ethic and his world and life view as opposed to that of the remainder of the Old Testament. He is perceived as a maverick among sages who propounded incompatible propositions. Now, let's get into some conservatives. Leupold, who's a Lutheran scholar, believed that Coleth was a true man of God who is offering invaluable counsel in the book. However, he saw him as a rationalistic apology who was seeking to convince his readers of true happiness by showing how miserable life is under the sun, which he took as apart from God, which we'll see is a totally false idea. The book is an attempt to reason men towards God purely by rational, rationally seeking to convince them of their despair in order to drive them to God. And that's not a proper apologetic. And then the New Scope Reference Bible, um, probably a Bible that was spread throughout this country um, and, and has done as much harm as good. And that's being nice. Ecclesiastes is a book of man under the sun reasoning about life. The philosophy is set forth which makes uh, no claim to revelation but which inspiration records for our instruction representing the worldview of the wisest man who knew that there is a holy God that will bring everything into judgment. I mean, you get a few things right there. Now, talk about uh, the modern view. This is um, part of Richard Belcher's book on Proverbs. And I, I didn't get a copy of it, but Tremper Logaman as well held a similar view to Ecclesiastes as Belcher. He says the book can be divided by the fact that chapters 1, 1 through 11, and 12, 8 through 14 are written from a third person perspective. And verse 1, 12 through 12, 7 are written from a first person perspective. And thus you begin to see that, that the book had two authors. The majority of the book is Cola's autobiography, written in the first per person. It is written from an under-the-sun perspective and questions the meaning of life. God is never brought in as a solution to the problem that plagues Cola. Now, that's a startling uh, statement from a conservative. The third-party prologue, third prologue in the epilogue subverts the autobiography and provides the biblical answer to Colet's questions. That's why many believe, especially uh, that the epilogue was written by somebody else at a later date, tacked on so that it would make the book more tractable. Belcher states, God is never brought in as a solution to the problem that plagues Colet. Well, this statement doesn't actually reflect. In 729, God created man upright, but he fell. This brings about death. In 39, the fate of animals and man are the same. Both die, which was not originally intended. The fall brought about death. 
3.20, man created from the dust, and after death returns to the dust. In 3.17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. In 5.1, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Guard your words and thoughts when bringing things up to God, for he is in heaven and you are on earth. In 5.7, or in 5.19, God gives riches and God keeps him occupied. In 6.2, God gives riches, wealth, and honor. In 14, God gives prosperity and adversity. In 15, I command pleasure, which is a gift of God. And I can't comprehend all the works of God. In 8.17, Solomon says, the wisest man on earth said, I can't comprehend all the works of God. We're finite creatures. We do not have comprehensive knowledge. But we can have true knowledge. We will never, ever get to the place where we have comprehensive knowledge of God, even in the eternal state. In 9.1, our deeds are in the hand of God. 9.7, eat, drink, for God approves. In 11.9, God will judge us. In 12.1, remember your creator. In verse 7, body returns to dust and the spirit returns to God. And then the concept of fearing God, which shows up at the end, is also found in 314, 57, 8, 12, 13, as well as 1214. Now let's look at what is called the biblical interpretation of the book. The properly understood, or to properly understand the book, one should try to read it in one setting. Unlike Proverbs, where you can take sections and, and come away with understanding of what Solomon's writing in that section. It's very hard to do that if you read the book of Ecclesiastes like you read the book of Proverbs. It won't work. And then we mentioned this, while the term vanity is found 37 times in the book, the word Elohim is found 40 times. In 729, again, God created man upright. The fall had cataclysmic effects on man and all of creation, bringing about vanity and frustration and ultimately leading to death. The book navigates how man is to live life in a world turned upside down by sin while never forgetting that God is his creator, his sustainer, and his judge. Now, just on a side note, in Acts 14 and Acts 17, the Apostle Paul deals with uh, Gentiles. And he doesn't approach Gentiles like he would Jews. He doesn't begin with Christ. He begins with God as the creator, as the sustainer, and as the judge. The unifying message, far from being sub-Christian theme, is one that provides a strong view of realism. The current view of life is one that has been subjected to frustration due to the fall. Again, subject, subjected to creation, to frustration. And then I'm so glad Paul says, in hope, because this is not a permanent subjection. The creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. When the book concludes with the expectation that God will climax time and eternity with judgment of the good and evil, it may be legitimately expected that God will make all things right, that there will be just recompense. And so as you look through the book of Ecclesiastes, you see like the, the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering. And, and that's found several times. But what we have to come to the realization of is that in this world turned upside down by sin, you're gonna find things like that. I mean, just look at the Christian persecution that's going on now. 
and even in America. The point is, is that one day, God will correct us when he, in hope, um, brings about or sets free from its bondage to decay. The creation will be set free. And that will include both man and the created order. And then the framework gives us a realistic perspective of life lived in a fallen world where what was intended is not uh, and what was not intended is. Now, as you look at the book, you find here that in the introduction, there are three phrases that can be found. And if I can get my tablet to work, which I should have done this before I... Ecclesiastes 1, 2. Vanity, vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? And that really sets the stage for the entire book. These three phrases are frustration of frustration. What's the profit? That's really what that term means. What's the profit? And the phrase under the sun. The term Havel occurs 71 times in the Old Testament, and 36 of them are found in the book of Ecclesiastes. The word is understood as being transitory or frustration. It should not be understood. In, in the NIV, I think it says meaningless. Well, meaningless means skepticism. And o, o Palmer Robertson takes issue with that and says that it should not be used or translated meaningless. Robert states that the transitoriness or vanity may be viewed as the objective side of the term. Frustration best represents the effect of this transitoriness or vanity on the human psyche. In other words, when we look at things, nothing stays the same, but everything stays the same. And, and we live in this, you know, really transition where what should be isn't what should, shouldn't be is. And, and um, so he says that the term transitory or transition uh, refers to the objective side of the term. And frustration best represents the effect of the transitoriness or vanity on the human psyche. Because this definitely affects the human psyche. It affects all of us as we live in this world. It can be very frustrating. Robertson says the transitoriness or vanity may be viewed as the objective side, frustration as the human, uh, the uh, subjective side. According to Paul, this presentation, present order in creation survives despite the divine curse and continues in hope. A hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage decay. That's why I used uh, Romans 8, 20 and 21 as a memory verse for this book. The judgmental sentence of inevitable deterioration results on the whole of this fallen creation. Yet, we look forward to the prospect of restoration. And it stands perpetually alongside of the frustration that arises from the curse. You know, you find scholars and the Bible says they're ever learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. You see people who have more money than, than probably all of us have combined, and yet they commit suicide. Because it's very frustrating to live in this world. Especially if you don't understand that there is a movement forward or a telic movement 
of creation. And as you look at the book of Solomon, there is also cyclical patterns in creation. What will be has already been. You know, it's one of the statements that you see often in the book. So, the second term is what's the prophet? This occurs 10 times in Ecclesiastes and not found in the rest of the Old Testament. The phrase means what's the gain or the advantage or the profit of life? In terms of man, uh, in, in terms of what man takes with him after death, there's no profit. You can't bring it with you. You know, you can amass a large sum of money, but when you die, that money goes to someone else. And, and that's what this, I think, is referring to as you look through the book. You know, death wasn't supposed to be, but it is. And death is the ultimate frustrating part of the fall in the, in the view of Solomon. Thus, prophet will come, however, in this life and in the world to come through God's gift of wisdom. Under the sun, which is one of the phrases that's used by liberals and even some conservatives to say that Solomon means life under the sun or in this present universe without God intervening. It occurs 26 times in the book and not anywhere else in scripture. Under under the sun refers to a realistic perspective of life in this world in which humanity has fallen into sin. It doesn't mean life without God in the world. And that's a very important point to remember. Under the sun, man's heart are full of wickedness. In addition to his ever-present moral depravity under the sun, evil is the sense of calamitous circumstances manifested itself in this current life under the sun. Because again, man fell, creation was subjected to frustration. Yet despite all the apparent gloom associated with this perspective, the council of Colette or the preacher or Solomon is to enjoy your daily routine of life under the sun. Enjoy your eating and drinking and work under the sun. Rejoice with your wife whom you love as you live out the cycle of your life under the sun. For these enjoyments of life under the sun can come only from the hand of a benevolent God, the giver of every good and perfect gift. And we see that in both Romans and the book of James. Now we come to the epilogue. The epilogue, as I've stated, many believe, and, and some conservatives believe, Belcher and Mogaman, that this was an addition to the book probably later on. Because, you know, you read the book, especially in the first person uh, section, which is the majority of the book, the, the actual life history of Solomon. And let me, let me just make this point. The book of Ecclesiastes, I think, was written shortly before Solomon's death. And what it shows as nowhere else in the scripture, you know, you read in 1 Kings and Solomon died. And that's it. Doesn't talk about restoration. You know, so what's, what's the conclusion? What happened to Solomon? Well, I think what happened to Solomon is that a few years before his death, he came to the realization that he had sinned against the holy and righteous God, and he comes back to the faith and writes this book. And he writes about his life experiences, both as king, serving God, and as the one who 
sought out foreign women and their foreign gods. And he de demonstrates that, you know, I'm the wisest man that's ever lived. As a matter of fact, I think that one could say that Solomon was the greatest philosopher ever to live. And the book of Ecclesiastes could be said as, as an overall, overall um, the philosophy of history. It talks about what was, what is, and what is to come. And so this book, I think, gives us the assurance that Solomon was restored to faith shortly before his death. Now, 12.8 uh, through 14 is not an addition to the book, but rather a fitting summary of the book. The concept of divine judgment, human accountability, and divine imperatives are found throughout the book. It's not that Solomon never talked about these things and some author thought, well, this book really shouldn't be in the canon. Let me put this ending to it and make it more palatable. And that's actually some of the thoughts, even of conservatives. In verse 8, we see a repeat of chapter 1, verse number 2. Frustration, frustration, all is frustration. And verse 10 says the book contains words of truth. Solomon, rather than saying nothing matters, states that everything matters. He wasn't a skeptic. He was a realist. Living life in this present world, cursed by the fall and all the struggles that it brings to us. In verse number 11, um, verse number 11 states, there is, these are the words of the one shepherd. And I think this is a reference to God. Solomon says, the words that I have written come from God. I didn't just make these up. These are the inspired infallible words that God has given to me to write. So God is the ultimate author of, Saul, of Ecclesiastes. In verse 13 is the conclusion of the book. Hear God and keep his commandments. Now, we've already said, seen that several places in the book, Solomon talks about the fact that we should fear God. This is not an addition that was never dealt with before. You know, fear God and keep his commandments. However, this is the duty of all mankind. It's not just the duty of Israel. And that's why I say that probably best understood that Solomon writes from the perspective of Genesis 1 through 11. And there is really no reference in the book to Jehovah. The covenant name of God, Yahweh, is not found in the book at all we find that there's no mention of Abraham, of Moses, Joshua, Judges, and the redemptive historical nature that takes place after Abraham with the Abrahamic covenant. He doesn't deal with that at all. But rather, he deals with Genesis 1 through 11, that, and especially the first part of Genesis 1, where mankind was created upright, but mankind fell. And the fall brought about a cataclysmic change, both in man and the universe. However, this did not change the fact that man is to fear God and keep his commandments. That's the duty of all men. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why we preach the law of God, because every man is responsible. God calls all men everywhere to repent, not just Jews, but all men. And I think that's why it's best understood that Solomon wrote this book to mankind in general. 
He says, a knowledge of God leads to obedience for all who know him. However, as, as I stated, this is the duty of all mankind, not just those who come to a knowledge of God and live in obedience. So the lost man that you come in contact with tomorrow is a person who has a responsibility to love God and keep his commandments. He has the responsibility to fear God and keep his commandments. An interesting note we read in the book of Proverbs, that fear is the beginning of wisdom or fear is the beginning of knowledge. So fearing God brings about great benefit for those who love him and keep his commandments. And then in verse 14, God brings every act to judgment. Now this is not the first time that it's found. It's not just interjected at the end. We see it throughout the book. Everything hidden, whether it is good or evil, will be brought to judgment. Death is due to sin, but it doesn't end there. After death, comes the judgment for all mankind and his final destination. And so basically Solomon is writing from the perspective of creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation. I think we've heard that mainly from Eddie, I think, that these things, man is created righteous, but he fell. Thus man needs redemption. And all mankind, whether they are redeemed or not, will stand before God and give an account for everything that is done. And this conclusion is a fitting summary of what Solomon talks about in the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, I think I'll end there and open it up for a few questions. I think we have a little bit of time. Uh-oh. They're going to give you a mic or... because the epilogue helps you understand what went before. And I can think of two other writers where that's very, very helpful. There is a sense of frustration and futility at the beginning and the epilogue explains so much. And that is Asaph in Psalm 73. There's a sense of frustration. There's a sense of futility until he goes into the house of the Lord and the epilogue puts it all in perspective, but the second that you might not think of is Paul in Romans 7, 14 to 25. Paul says, I am carnal, sold under sin. It is feeling, it is frustration, almost futility, but Paul explains in 25 in the epilogue, so with my mind I serve the law of Christ, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. There is a theological reality that deals with the frustration that I feel. Because Paul had already said in Romans 6:14, sin shall not have dominion over you. Well, let me, let me just add, you just reminded me of something. Uh, it has nothing to do with what you said, but you reminded me of something. Um, the wisdom literature, most of the wisdom literature is written from the perspective of Genesis 1 to 11. Very interesting. As you look at that, there's a lot of parallels to Proverbs in the book because there's a lot of Proverbs that Solomon uses. There's also a lot of similarity to the book of Job where he is subjected to frustration and serves God to his end, as Solomon says we should all do. Another question. 
Nikki, I want to connect in my mind, I wonder what you think of this, the absence of the name of Yahweh, the covenantal name of God, from the book with its, uh, with its kind of pessimistic uh, outlook on life in this world. Uh, and I want to say, uh, I want to say that without this relationship with the covenant God, uh, this is how life feels it is in the world. Do you think there's a connection there? There could be. But, you know, I don't want to, you know, say that the book was totally negative. There's negative thoughts, definitely. And Solomon was well aware of the history of Israel, well aware of the the, the covenant um, that God gave to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. So that's, that's a good point. I mean... But I think, again, the reason why he uses Elohim is to direct the reader to the fact that he is talking about all of mankind, not just to the covenant people of God. And I think that's a key issue. Okay, we get a question, one more. Uh, Around the middle of the class, we mentioned the fact that history is not only a straight line, but also cyclical. And studying for Proverbs, I think it was Robertson that said something similar. Uh, He was talking about the relationship of the wisdom books to the rest of the Bible. Um, My question is, how how can we as New Covenant Christians uh, recognize the, the straight line in redemptive history, but also the cyclical pattern uh, that you mentioned, and not fall into uh, indifference or pessimism? Well, first of all, it's the realization that we are moving towards an intended end. And that's why we fear God and keep his commandments. Now, the cyclical nature, we see it every day. The sun comes up sun goes down and then it repeats itself there are many cyclical patterns but I think the cyclical patterns don't spin on themselves they are a spiral moving towards an intended end and I think you know people will take and say you know that there's life is just full of cyclical patterns but not add that we are moving towards an intended end where there will be judgment. So I don't know if I answered your question, but. Thank you. Okay, we better break there. Thank you very much. Uh, You're dismissed.